I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Conditions that persist for many years pose a challenge for modern medicine. How well do doctors manage long illnesses? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Persistent Lyme disease, long COVID, fibromyalgia, and chronic fatigue syndrome are often overwhelming for patients. That's because there are no widely accepted treatments. Healthcare providers may feel unprepared to manage some of these seemingly invisible illnesses. What could they do differently? When doctors have personal experience with long-lasting symptoms, it may change their perspective. Our guest today has a medical degree, a PhD, and her own life's journey with long illness. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, lessons learned from long illness. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines... One of the first tools people used to try to cut the transmission of COVID-19 was the very old practice of covering the nose and mouth with a mask. During the 1918 influenza pandemic, this was one of the few ways public health officials attempted to slow the spread of the disease. This week, two new studies have been published evaluating the effectiveness of this practice. Such assessments are difficult because there are many different kinds of masks. Some may be more effective than others in protecting against an airborne virus. In addition, people vary greatly in how they wear masks. One study examined SARS-CoV-2 in classroom air in two high schools in Switzerland. The study took place between January and March 2022, when Omicron dominated. There was virus present in the air all through the study time frame. In the school that mandated mask wearing, however, there were 70 percent fewer viral particles detected. Air cleaners also lowered the amount of virus in the air by 40 percent. The researchers concluded that mask mandates reduced viral transmission in classrooms. Another study analyzed three randomized clinical trials and 21 observational studies of masks. It was difficult to evaluate how the differences between cloth masks or N95 masks may have affected the outcome. However, the investigators determined that wearing masks leads to a modest reduction in COVID transmission in community settings. An accompanying editorial in the Annals of Internal Medicine concludes, To get to the truth about masking, the authors say it's imperative to design studies that fill information gaps, interpret the evidence accurately, and are honest about what we do and do not know. Few drugs in medical history have stimulated more controversy than hormone replacement therapy for menopause. The FDA approved Primarin in the early 1940s, and it was widely prescribed for decades. Then the Women's Health Initiative was published in 2002. This large randomized controlled trial was a landmark study, including 160,000 postmenopausal women for 15 years. It demonstrated an increased risk for cardiovascular events among women taking hormone replacement therapy. There was also a greater risk of breast cancer among women taking HRT. Now, an 
overview in the Canadian Medical Association Journal encourages doctors to weigh both the benefits of hormone replacement therapy along with the drawbacks. They point out that menopausal hormone therapy can cut hot flashes and night sweats by as much as 90%. In addition, women taking HRT sleep better and have fewer mood disturbances. Estrogen reduces the chance of fractures due to osteoporosis. For many women, though, the prospect of breast cancer or heart disease remains a barrier to hormone therapy for more than a short period of time. The FDA has just approved a novel medication to treat severe hot flashes caused by menopause. Fezolinotant works by blocking neurokinin-3, a compound that helps control the body's temperature regulation. It does not work through sex hormones like estrogen, and consequently, it's considered safer for women who can't take hormone therapy. This prescription drug will be sold under the brand name Vioza to be taken at the same time each day. Side effects include stomach ache, diarrhea, back pain, insomnia, and elevated liver enzymes. Liver injury is a serious risk, and people with existing liver or kidney disease should avoid it. The projected cost is $550 a month. Some doctors expect that Vioza will be especially helpful for women over 60 since they're more susceptible to serious side effects from estrogen. Lyme disease is caused by a pathogen called Borrelia burgdorferi that's transmitted through tick bites. Prompt treatment with antibiotics often leads to a complete cure. Some people, however, develop lingering symptoms. For years, infectious disease experts denied that they could be suffering long-term complications of Borreliosis. Now, researchers have found a link between elevated levels of interferon alpha in the blood and persistent neurological symptoms of Lyme. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. According to the CDC, roughly 6 in 10 American adults are dealing with a long illness. Heart disease and cancer are among the most common conditions, but arthritis, lung disease, and kidney problems are also challenging. Chronic fatigue syndrome, also called myalgic encephalomyelitis, post-polio syndrome, Chronic Lyme disease and long COVID are more controversial, but they affect millions of people. Too many people have sought help for persistent symptoms and been told there's nothing wrong with them. Or they may be told that nothing can be done for their suffering. To learn more about long illness, we're talking with Dr. Megan Jobson. She's uniquely qualified to address this topic. Dr. Jobson is an internist with specialized training in integrative and palliative medicine. She has a Ph.D. in neuroscience and is also a practicing movement instructor. She is herself a person who lives and thrives with a chronic illness. In her clinical work, she combines her diverse training in exercise and movement, nutrition, conventional medicine, neuroscience, and integrative medicine. With these interwoven techniques, she creates a custom approach to improving and maintaining the quality of life of her patients. 
Dr. Jobson with Dr. Juliet Morgan is the author of Long Illness, a practical guide to surviving, healing, and thriving. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Megan Jobson. Hi, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here today and talk to you. Dr. Jobson, we interviewed Dr. Paul Cheney in the 1980s about a strange illness that he identified at Incline Village on the north shore of Lake Tahoe. Now, that was before there was even a name for chronic fatigue syndrome, and he was met with skepticism and I would say even outright hostility by some of his colleagues. The media called it yuppie flu. And I always found that really demeaning. Why do you think this idea of long illness has been so hard for people, and and especially some of your colleagues, to wrap their heads around? Yeah, I think that doctors and healthcare practitioners are, are very smart people. They go to school. They're very successful. And um, certainly in that time, most people who were doctors were um, able-bodied, uh, were mainly made up of white males. And that definitely has changed. And um, they often had support at home, those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I think that when you are a perfectionist and you've done so well in school and everything, you think that, okay, you've learned this paradigm of I am going to find a diagnosis. There will be these very specific tests and then there will be a treatment. Like the classic example someone uses is a person breaks an arm. We all know what a broken arm is, even someone who's not a doctor. The treatment, the diagnosis is a fracture and the treatment will be put a cast on it or do surgery and then physical therapy and they'll get better. But the truth is, is those things are much more complicated than that. And people can, can get lots of different types of chronic effects from, from even a broken arm. But I think when doctors become uncomfortable and healthcare practitioners in general is when something doesn't fit. And as the time that we have been allowed to spend with patients becomes more and more compressed, uh, it becomes really hard to decide how to best spend our time in the rooms with these patients. And when people have symptoms that are hard to fit into a box, I think that people get frustrated as physicians because you never feel like you're doing a very good job. And that, that certainly isn't an excuse, but I think that it's uncomfortable to not do a job well when, when you've been doing your job well up until that point. And so I think part of it's that. And I think another thing is that, you know, there's this myth in our society that, that of virility and wellness in our culture and the myth of the able body that, that really serves no one. And it's one of the last, you know, big areas that, that persists, you know, like in terms of like racism and those kinds of things. So, so this sort of ableist view that, that, you know, we've been so programmed to think of, of being disabled as a bad word. But, you know, these people are suffering and, and things are going on with them. And just because they don't fit into what medical knowledge knows right now and what we can define right now doesn't mean that it's not happening to these people and that, that it doesn't exist. And so I think we really have to listen and, and validate people. And it also is really easy to invalidate people when 
you know, they, they certainly at the, at the beginning come from these groups, you know, called the yuppie flu or, you know, their, their stay at home moms, Mm -hmm. I think is what, what they came from. Uh, Well, Dr. Jobson, I think that you and your your uh, co-author, Juliet Morgan, have written this book, Long Illness, at exactly the right time. We now are in a situation where people are aware of a condition that doctors have a lot of different names for, but patients pretty much call it long COVID. And physicians are having difficulties with diagnosis and with treatment. They don't have good treatments for this condition. Why is this a problem with long COVID and other long illnesses? Yeah, I think that our medical system right now is best set up to deal with acute issues and some standard chronic illnesses like diabetes that a lot of money and time and effort has been invested into. And cancer is another great example. And the reason that we have great treatments and interventions for this is because there was large amounts of funding and effort that were put into this. You know, certainly with cancer um, during the 1970s, quite a bit of money was put into research, into understanding the disease of, diseases of cancer. And because of that, we have a system where we can best identify, treat these diseases. Where in the past, you know, if you look 60 years ago, Most of these conditions um, had very poor outcomes and limited treatment. I think long COVID has kind of erupted very rapidly. And so, you know, this is a new phenomenon that's come off of this specific virus. And certainly there are tons of other viruses that have caused long illnesses in the past. But this is a new one, and it's happened to so many people all at once. So it's very much overwhelming a healthcare system that was very weak to begin with and that was much more weakened by the acute COVID-19 sufferers when they came in the first time. And now we have these people who are lingering with this illness. And so it's, it's really hard for the system to find a place for them. Well, Dr. Jepson, we understand that you yourself have experience with a long illness. And we're wondering what has been most helpful to you during your journey? Yeah, I think the most important thing to me is building my community. And there's a few parts of that. So first, building my medical community. And it's hard for anyone, even someone with me, like me, who has so much access as a physician, as a scientist, it was very hard to identify different practitioners that could help me along my way. And it took a lot of trial and error. But what I have managed to build are multiple people who I trust and who see me and hear my story and can help me get the care I need when I need it. And then also, aside from my medical community, which includes everyone from, you know, acupuncturist to massage therapist, to my rheumatologist, to my immunologist, I think that also building my my social community and making sure that the people in my life understand what's going on with me, keeping them up to date as much as I can, and providing them ways to be the most supportive to me. And also, a lot of my friends over time 
are also people who are dealing with long illness or other issues. And we help each other and support each other through these issues. And so I think having the ability to talk in groups to people is really helpful. And I would just, you know, say that probably the most important thing I did was was finally, you know, admitting to myself that I am a person that's living with a long illness and that's okay. You know, really working on accepting what's going on with you and then reaching out to other people like you and um, building that community. It's been key for me. Dr. Jobson, you've described a problem that now exists widely around the world with long COVID. And that is that people don't just have one thing that's wrong. They, they often have a number of different conditions and they may need a wide array of both physical help from different doctors, as well as psychological support from different folks. Can you explain why that's so important that it's not a, Oh, you've got a broken arm. All you need to do is get a cast. Yeah. So I think what, it's important to have an interdisciplinary team that has expertise in all these different body systems. We aren't trained as physicians in how to uh, build that interdisciplinary part between different um, groups of, of physicians and, and healthcare practitioners. And so I think being able to go to a center that specializes in your long illness, like long COVID, and have access to many different types of practitioners so that you can be screened initially to see if you need to see the neurologist, the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, the pulmonologist can be most helpful for these patients. You are listening to Dr. Megan Jobson, an internist with a special interest in integrative and palliative medicine. She's also a neuroscientist and a practicing movement instructor. She has personal experience with long illness and shares the lessons she has learned. Dr. Jobson, with her co-author, Dr. Juliet Morgan, has written Long Illness, a practical guide to surviving, healing, and thriving. After the break, we'll hear how patient support groups can help in person or online. What kinds of conditions give rise to long illness? How do physical problems and mental symptoms interact in such cases? You can't always tell that someone is ill just by looking at them. Find out about the toll of invisible illnesses. Why is validation so important for patients? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. With the proven power of cocoa flavanols, Cocovia supplements support blood flow from head to toe. This National Physical Fitness and Sports Month, Give your heart and brain 100% and support a healthy you with the most proven flavanol bioactive. Get 20% off your Cocovia order from May 8th through May 22nd using the discount code FITNESSPOD at Cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. May is National Physical Fitness and Sports Month. How can Cocovia be a part of your nutrition and exercise routine? More information available at cocovia.com. The People's Pharmacy is also supported by Gaia Herbs. Focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. It's estimated that more than half the U.S. population is dealing with a chronic condition. That means over 133 million adults are suffering. Today, we're discussing the lessons learned about long illness when someone has an invisible condition such as long COVID, persistent Lyme, fibromyalgia, or chronic fatigue syndrome. Some healthcare providers may not take them seriously. Our guest today is Dr. Megan Jobson, an internist with a special interest in integrative and palliative medicine. She's also a neuroscientist and a practicing movement instructor. Dr. Jobson, with her co-author, Dr. Juliet Morgan, has written Long Illness, a practical guide to surviving, healing, and thriving. Dr. Jobson, the Internet has made it possible for people around the world uh, who have long COVID, for example, or some other um, long-lasting illness, rheumatoid arthritis, for example, uh, to connect with each other in, in patient support groups, how has that affected their approach to their conditions? I think it's one of the greatest things about um, the internet and social media. It's It's a way to empower patients to, first of all, find validation when they might not be finding validation in the area they live in with the people they have access to finding other people with common stories, helping them feel like they're not alone, letting them know what they're experiencing is real and that there are, you know, solutions and tools. Being able to hear from other people who have things going on in their bodies similar to yours can be really helpful for troubleshooting, um, coming up with ideas of, of where to get help, how to get help, different things that you can talk to your doctor about and try. So I think this is really great for people. And I'm hoping that, you know, some of these organizations that have started up with long COVID will continue to grow and allow for there to be more dialogue uh, between patients and between people who have long illnesses and also allow for uh, healthcare practitioners to be involved as well as they are often people who have long illness. Speaking of long illnesses, I think, you know, everybody has kind of gotten a picture with, with long COVID. And, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the symptoms that, that people are struggling with. And we'll also talk a bit more about chronic fatigue syndrome or what it's now called, which is ME-CFS. But let's talk about some of the other conditions or causes behind long illness. I, I think about arthritis. My mom age 90, had pretty serious arthritis that limited her her mobility. 
And I know people with rheumatoid arthritis, she had osteoarthritis, are often really in a pickle in terms of getting around, even with all of our modern medicines. But there's multiple sclerosis, there's Parkinson's disease. What are some of the other conditions that you've uh, written about with regard to long illness? Yeah, so long illness is a term that we use instead of chronic illness, because chronic for us felt stagnant. It also carries a lot of stigma from the medical establishment as being sort of more difficult conditions. And so the long, the word long acknowledges the uncertainty and it, it avoids some dismissive terms like post and syndrome that can delegitimize suffering. And the reason we chose long illness is because it includes anyone who identifies with it. Um, so for example, in the book, we list out many disorders, but there are hundreds, and they include the ones that you uh, mentioned, as well as, you know, dementias, celiac disease, cancer, heart disease, schizophrenia, migraines, you know, long COVID, of course, inflammatory bowel disease, depression. And the uniting, the uniting story underneath all of these is, is inflammation. And that often something is off in the body, and something is unregulated, and the body reacts to that in a normal, healthy way, except a lot of times there is an overreaction somewhere in the body, and that can cause more problems in the body. Uh, you just named off a, a huge list of uh, possible diagnoses that people might have, and yet perhaps there are some underlying similarities. Could you tell us about the patterns? Yeah, I think some things you you hear a lot that have been in the news, especially with long COVID, because I think that's gotten a lot of attention and people identify with are things like brain fog, dysautonomia, headaches, breathing issues, fatigue, pain, difficulty with digestion, and sleep issues, and then mental health issues like depression, anxiety, trauma. Dr. Jobson, I'm wondering about the interplay between physical symptoms and mental symptoms, for example, depression. Oh, yeah. So I think there's been a common way that we've been taught that the mind and body are separated. And we know now that is, is definitely not true. So, you know, your brain is not by itself in your body. It's connected to your lungs. It's connected to your gut. It's connected to everything. That's how it controls everything. And so it can get feedback from other parts of your body. And it's definitely susceptible to all the same reactions that happen in the rest of your body, like inflammation. It's made up of the same type of cellular building blocks. And I think that there's a lot of people who have issues with gut health, for example, that's one thing that people are really interested in talking about right now. But when your gut is dysregulated, there is a direct connection to the brain from your gut. And your gut actually has its own nervous system called the enteric nervous system. And they communicate with each other. And so often digestive symptoms can come across as depression you know, people feeling sad, feeling bad, but really they have something wrong with their gut. And they may also have depression, but these things kind of look the same. And that's why I think they can be dismissed often, because a lot of 
physical symptoms can manifest in ways that sound, when they're described, more like mental health issues. And that's why for me, I kind of don't separate the two because I think they're connected. And I think it's very common for people who have, for example, only depression to have physical symptoms in their body. Because for example, your brain is connected to your lungs. And when you're anxious, you can have the sensation that you can't breathe or that you're feeling like you can't breathe. And that is a real sensation and it's and it feels real to you. And so we shouldn't try to delineate and say, okay, no, actually you totally can breathe to somebody who feels like they can't breathe. I think it's important to validate it and try to figure out the root cause of it. And to be honest, a lot of times there's people who have multiple diagnoses. It's not just that they have, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, but that they have irritable bowel syndrome and then also they have depression or anxiety or something like that. And they might manifest in different ways that overlap with each other. Dr. Thompson, one of the challenges I suspect with long illness is that a lot of the disabilities, a lot of the symptoms are invisible. So I have a friend who has really, really bad migraines every day. And has had them for years. And he's been to so many neurologists and doctors. And nobody can figure out what exactly is going on. But he is, I mean, he's hes working, he's functional. But it really does impact his life. And people who have something called complex regional pain syndrome, constant pain, severe pain, or even just back pain. And I say even, I mean, as someone who has had severe back pain, it's really disabling, but you, but you may not be able to show it to somebody. You can't measure your pain on a scale like you would with blood sugar and say, look, see, I'm off the scale. I'm in terrible trouble. So if, if, you're, if your illness is invisible, both to friends, family, and more important to healthcare professionals, sometimes people don't take your condition very seriously. That's true. And I think, you know, these invisible disabilities or hidden disabilities are, you know, like you explained, they're things that people are experiencing, but then that cannot be seen by others or maybe even measured by others. And I, I think that what's really important is that we need to realize that if someone is suffering, that we need to validate it and say, yes, this is real. I agree with you. And I think what I challenge everyone to do is broaden their definition of disability. I think when we think about disability, we think about a wheelchair or Braille. You know, we tend to think about, about physical disabilities. And we often don't think about other types of disabilities at all. And so I think it's important that as a society, we realize that a lot of people are suffering in silence and saying things like, you don't look sick or you look fine to me. These statements can be well-intentioned, but they feel really invalidating to a person. And suffering just gets worse when it goes unseen and when people don't make you feel like you have something legitimately going wrong with you. Why is validation so important? Well, I think that that's a pretty simple question. Nobody likes to be told that they 
what they're feeling isn't real. And it's important for you as a person to feel like your reality and your experiences are real. And, and, you know, even if they're not right, I'm sure there's very rare few cases of people who are, who are experiencing things that are not actually happening to them. Those people are still suffering and you need to make sure that you're addressing their suffering so that you can understand the root of it so that you can help them if you're their friend or their physician. And what we have heard so often from people with a, a wide range, actually, of, of uh, diagnoses, ultimately, is I went to see the doctor and what I got back was gaslighting. I was told that my symptoms were nothing more than psychosomatic. I mean, People with thyroid problems have gotten that type of reaction. People with all kinds of other problems have gotten that type of of reaction. And it's because either the doctor doesn't know which biomarkers to look at or the person's biomarkers aren't really telling the story. Can you expound on that a little bit, please? And I'd love to have a story about somebody that you have encountered. Yeah, so I think that for the first part of that, is that that's a, it's a very common experience. I've even experienced that myself often as someone in my position. So I think it comes down to really educating practitioners in communication and how to talk to people about these issues. I think the way that I start out with my patients is to say, I see you, I hear you, here are the things that are most concerning to you and we're going to work on them. But first, I just want to let you know that I see you and hear you. And second, it's happening. It's happening to you. And we might not have a test yet that can exactly pinpoint what this is. And we might not have a treatment that's exactly perfect for it right now. But there are things that we can do to help improve your quality of life and to feel better. I think that the 15-minute doctor appointment doesn't give a lot of time for that, and we're definitely not trained in how to communicate that. I think it's hard to admit to patients that our system doesn't have all the answers, but I think it's blaringly obvious, especially at this point for most people. Dr. Jobson, I'd like to describe what happened to one of our closest friends. Uh, We had known this person for over 40 years. And about 15 years ago, he began to suffer. I, I don't think brain fog is a particularly good description, but he, there were there were gaps in his memory and, and, and holes where he couldn't remember something that he, he felt he should. And he was one of the most brilliant people we have ever known. He was a cello player and he was having some trouble mastering you know, some of the pieces he was working on. And so he went to uh, a place that you are quite familiar with, University of California, San Francisco, and he was tested and they said, oh, you're fine. You're perfect. You're better than most of the people who come in here. But he knew he wasn't fine for him. Mm. And it took almost 10 years for him to be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and in fact, some neurological problems. But for those 10 years, he suffered because he was told every time he went in for tests that he was perfectly normal and just go home and be fine. And he wasn't. 
and mm. it made life really hard for him and his family. Mm. I'm so sorry for your friend. Um, you know, this is a common story I hear. And, you know, what I would say is that the way I frame it with people is in our lives, we will all get illnesses of different kinds. And things, you know, kind of bubble up to the surface in our body and different machinery in our body can help take care of it, but sometimes it can't. And when it gets bad enough that tests can detect it, then we can rationalize giving certain treatments because right, treat, some treatments have harm. But right now, some of the things we might be seeing might mean that you're going to develop an autoimmune disease in the future, might mean that you're going to have a neurological uh, diagnosis in the future. But right now, your symptoms, you're having a lot of neurological symptoms that are very distressing to you. And in this biomedical model that we have right now at UCSF, you know, at that group, we don't have something we can diagnose you with. But that doesn't mean that something isn't wrong and that we can't give you some tools and ways to help you feel like you're, that you're, you can thrive. And then also that we won't recommend follow-up and how to, to follow this to see if it manifests into something. You're listening to Dr. Megan Jobson. She's an internist with specialized training in integrative and palliative medicine. She's also a neuroscientist and a practicing movement instructor. Dr. Jobson is herself a person who lives and thrives with a long illness. In her clinical work, she combines her diverse training in exercise and movement, nutrition, conventional medicine, neuroscience, and integrative medicine. With these interwoven techniques, she creates customized approaches to improving and maintaining the quality of life of her patients. Dr. Jobson, with Dr. Juliet Morgan, is the author of Long Illness, a practical guide to surviving, healing, and thriving. After the break, we'll consider some of the many different attitudes people have toward their illnesses. Conventional medicine doesn't always have treatments for long-lasting conditions. What other approaches may be helpful? We'll hear about the benefits of dietary approaches in acupuncture. How can family members and friends best support those with long illnesses? We'll learn which tools Dr. Jobson has found most helpful in her own experience. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. May is National Physical Fitness and Sports Month. How can Cocovia be a part of your nutrition and exercise routine? 
More information is available at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, our topic is lessons learned from long illness. How can friends and family members support people who are suffering persistent symptoms? Are there comments we should avoid? Dr. Megan Jobson is an internist specializing in integrative and palliative medicine. She's also a neuroscientist and a practicing movement instructor. Dr. Jobson's book is Long Illness, a Practical Guide to Surviving, Healing, and Thriving. Dr. Jobson, in Long Illness, you describe differing attitudes that people may have to their conditions, to their diagnoses. Can you tell us about the various attitudes and how they affect people's quality of life? Yeah, I think that people, when they're first diagnosed, I think, or even before diagnosis, things can be very overwhelming. And so I think that illness identity is something that's very well studied. And there's people who are far more expertise in myself than it. But basically, there are kind of four main paths that people take over the course of their illness. First is that being swallowed up, that engulfment. And, you know, and all these things, these are not like static things that you're that most people get stuck in their phases that people go through. But this is people who feel like illness has taken over their identity. And then there's rejection, people who just reject it, they don't manage their disease very well, they don't want to engage in their diagnosis. And there's people who accept it. Um, They tend to have less severe symptoms and less side effects. And they have um, fewer mental and physical manifestations of disease, higher life satisfaction. And then enrichment is kind of, you know, uh, another stage where they're more likely to have improved adaptive psychological functioning because they're more likely to adhere to their treatment, be involved um, with their caregivers and with their providers, practitioners. And and those are kind of like the the different stages that people move through when they're diagnosed and as they're ill, as, as they move through their chronic illness. It seems to me that conventional medicine, the medicine we're all familiar with when we go to the doctor's office, has had a a certain amount of trouble we've been talking about with long illness. Are there other cultures or other approaches to healing that do better? Yes, I think that that's why I chose to also train in terms, I trained in internal medicine, but I also trained in integrative medicine and palliative care. And both of those subspecialties allow people to spend a lot more time. So for example, an intake with a patient would be two one-hour visits. So being able to spend a lot more time with people is very key. So I think that there are parts of our biomedical system that are really understanding that the way that we are dealing with some complex patients is not helpful, and we're coming up with solutions within that. In other cultures and traditions, there are a lot of different approaches that we have taken into the biomedical model now, such as acupuncture, East Asian medicine, and then Ayurvedic medicine, which is uh, you know mainly from India. And those can be very helpful for people in how to approach illness. They have completely different systems of 
of how you approach illness and sickness. However, you know, I think that they, they all have their pros and cons. And I definitely didn't grow up in a system in which all I was exposed to was Ayurveda or Eastern Asian medicine and the many different other types of medical systems that exist. But certainly some of the best, quote unquote, measurable outcomes come from the biomedical model. I do think we can learn a lot from those, those systems, though, and how they um, embrace community in illness and acceptance. I wonder if you have experience with a patient of yours who has turned to one of those other models in addition to seeing you as the, uh, you know, the basic conventional medicine doctor who is not opposed to them using other approaches. You know, I have this very wonderful patient who just really changed my life in, in a lot of ways because it made me realize um, just how much you can learn from from patients as a practitioner. But I had a patient who had a lot of issues um, with pain and um, anxiety, and they had tried everything. And I encouraged them to explore traditional medicines, and they saw an Ayurvedist, and they didn't seem to get a lot of help from it. Then they saw an acupuncturist. And they were very skeptical because of the cost and they didn't like needles, but they decided they would try it. And luckily in our city, it's covered by our, our health plan and they tried it and it just really changed their lives. You know, they were surprised with how much it helped with their pain, how much it improved their anxiety. They said that it felt like a good reset to their nervous system. And they always had had this abdominal pain that they felt like the biomedical model could never really address or talk about. You know, the gastroenterologist they saw were like, you don't have any kind of gastrointestinal disease. But the way that the Eastern medicine practitioner talked about it resonated with them. And I think in these different ways of thinking about health, thinking about illness, thinking about our bodies, having those different ways to think about and talk about our experiences can give us other ways to feel heard and feel validated. And she felt like the, you know, sort of the biomedical understanding of her nerves and her electrical system that was causing her pain seemed very reductionist and limited. And the version that acupuncture offered her just made more sense to her intuitively. And it gave her a broader sense of really feeling connected as a human. And it also helped her pain. And, you know, I think that, you know, for them, it felt like it helped with a lot of stagnation in their body. And they keep it as something they do sort of regularly. And then when things flare up and get worse, and they have a great relationship with their acupuncturist, their acupuncturist and I talk about their care and how they're doing and what things we can do and things we've heard of that can help this person. And so I, I think it can be really life-changing. And it also, as a as someone who practices mainly in the biomedical world, making those connections in the community for myself, and I encourage other healthcare practitioners, is to learn about all these other options and all these other cultures. Biomedical medicine is one culture of healing in the United States. It's not the only one. And you need to learn about these other things to bring in the strengths that they have to help support your patient through them. I would like to ask about one of those 
other approaches that I think a lot of people are interested in. Dietary approaches. Have you seen uh, a change in diet make a difference for a patient? Yes, certainly for specific illnesses, that can be true. I think in general, the diet that a lot of people in the United States keep is pro-inflammatory and quite unhealthy. And what we've seen in a lot of studies is, and I'm sure you all have covered this, is that Mediterranean diets and similar diets can be very helpful in you know, increasing longevity, decreasing different types of cancer, decreasing inflammation, and helping with symptoms. So I think for, I mean, honestly, for everybody, I recommend eating a healthy diet and learning about what that means and educating yourself. Because when you, when you say that to people, I think people really have very different definitions of what that means. Oh, um, yeah. But just kind of learning and in our book, and there are a lot of other books about this, to just understand the, the, the diet or the regimens that are kind of recommended by, you know, the different, you know, national and international boards of what we think is kind of things that you should avoid, things that you should make sure you're including. And sorry to be very like big and vague about it, but starting at the very beginning and really kind of going back. And that's what I, that's what I do with myself too. Sometimes I step back and you have to go back to the building blocks. Even if you know all the things about it, it's really important to just go back and re-educate yourself. And also at the same time, be kind to yourself, do your best. It's really hard. Not all of us have access to food, to healthy food. Not all of us have access to the information about food. And there's also a lot of, you know, cultural things we all go, you know, sometimes, you know, where we we're from at, at Chapel Hill, we go to tailgates and it's not full of the healthiest food, but it can really help people to eat most of their diet in foods that are anti-inflammatory and that have vitamins and minerals and fiber and protein that can help our body do its job and take care of us. Dr. Jobson, how can family and friends best support those with long illness and avoid the mistakes that may cause more harm than good? Yeah, I think the things that we do to be a good friend to people are, are the same things. So how would you want to be treated in this situation? So I, I think just be there for someone, just listen even if you don't understand what is going on or what to do, just existing for someone is a big deal. And it's really hard to be someone who is sick, but it's also hard to care about someone who is sick. So it reminds us we don't have control over things and it makes us uncomfortable. But, you know, take care of yourself, but also, you know, just, just listen and be there and help these people in ways that you can. But also, you know, set healthy boundaries with people in your life who have illness as well. This is important for both of you. You know, you can be there for somebody and you can be supportive for somebody, but also setting up good, healthy boundaries so they know when they can rely on you and when they need to come up with other ways to get themselves help. And I think sometimes what happens for a lot of friends, coworkers, family, caregivers, is that this relationship of someone else doing a lot of things for you can happen that's sort of 
disempowering to the patient. And so that's why I want people to read this book. I want people to know that you can be your number one caregiver. You, while you're feeling good, can help come up with plans that other people can follow. And I come up with ideas that other people can help you with when things are going on. So, um, you know, people who are supportive friends and family can, can help also motivate people to, to help take accountability also for, for their illness. Because I think sometimes there's this learned helplessness I've seen in some patients, and this is very rare, but it's something that I think a lot of caregivers will come to me and struggle um, with these things. So we see you caregivers, we see you friends, we see you family, and also you might also have a long illness too. Um, and so thank you for being there for everyone. But listening is the, is the key and letting people express themselves. Dr. Thompson, I, I hate to sound critical of modern oh. medicine. <laughs> well, I do. And, and yet all you have to do is turn on the television to see an incredible number of prescription drug advertisements that seem to be offering a magic bullet. That if you just take our latest and greatest drug, which are, they're often very expensive, it will relieve your psoriatic arthritis. It will leave you feeling so much better because you'll no longer have migraine headaches. Or if you just take our pill, your digestive tract problems will be gone for good and you'll be running on the beach with dogs and children, and life will be fabulous. So this, this concept of the magic bullet, if you just ask your doctor for this prescription, boy, your life will be perfect. And that's not what you've been talking about today, especially when it comes to long illness. Yeah. And I would say that you know it's a very interesting thing being able to advertise medications to people um, and I found it quite peculiar um, because I didn't know that many people that were watching, you know, nighttime TV had all these con- had these conditions at such a rate that advertising would be would be worth it for somebody. But I guess that it is. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing to say is some of these medications are life changing for people and it's going to be a small percent of those people of the people who have the the issue that that medication is going to make a big difference for. And I think that that's great. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to have a further complication down the road, that they are going to have other issues uh, that they need help with. So I think building up your toolkit of other things that can be helpful for your other symptoms, for other things that are going on with your body is great. Knowing that that there are other medications out there that might be helpful to you, I think that that's that's fine. I do think it adds to sort of this romanticized notion we have about illness, these tropes that are sort of projected through media, you know, that someone gets sick and then they meet the right doctor and then all of a sudden everything is better. That's just not life. You know, that's not anyone's experience with anything. And I think it is really great that some of these medications, and I've taken a medicine that really did change my life in a lot of ways, but I've taken a lot of other medicine too that, that didn't. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's setting expectations with yourself that even all these other things in, in our book that we sort of recommend for you 
to trial and to go back to at different points in your in your illness, they're very important to build that up and not rely on just one thing. And I think anybody who works in any of those chronic illnesses uh, or long illnesses will agree and say the same thing. Dr. Jobson, there are probably millions of people in the United States and tens of millions of people around the world who are now suffering with what we refer to as long COVID, and they are experiencing fatigue and shortness of breath and brain fog and dozens of other symptoms. What would be your advice recommendations for listeners who may be experiencing long COVID symptoms? Yeah, I think if you're able to read a book or listen to an audio book, I think uh, my book and there are other books, uh, mine and Dr. Morgan's books, and there are other books also that are out there to kind of give yourself, if you're unable to read or comprehend information because of your long illness, someone else can read it. And then the other thing I think is trying to find one of the long COVID clinics that exist. Um, and get linked in with them. There are also a lot of other doctors who are not directly um, affiliated with that, but at large institutions who work with integrative medicine. Um, So most major medical hospitals have them. So uh, Vanderbilt has one that's near Chapel Hill where you are. And going to these people can kind of get you in with long COVID groups. Some long COVID groups do have restrictions for people who had severe initial disease. You know, there's a lot of exclusions. And I definitely am aware of that and have worked with patients who have long COVID um, who uh, are not accepted into these programs. Just keep looking for people who can help you through this. And it's hard because, you know, your primary care doctor, it's a lot of learning. It's a lot of things going on. And it might be out of their their wheelhouse to handle all this, but there are definitely things out there to to help them. And then I also think join these online groups, chat in them. There are some smart, wonderful people who are doing amazing reporting on long COVID. If you're unable to read it, um, there are you know find someone else, your friends or family who are able to to look at the information and, and try to find things to help you. Um, but there's a lot of really great tools in our book. There's a lot of suggestions about different things you can try, from supplements to natural products, from different types of exercises, journaling, how to find a therapist, all these types of things to build up your team of people who can support you during this time and can help you move forward in your life in hopefully a more positive direction than what's been going on. Dr. Jobson, what would you like to say to your colleagues? Uh, You have both an MD, a medical degree, and a PhD. You're a research scientist. What would you like other physicians, other healthcare practitioners to know about long illness and how best to listen and treat patients who have been suffering in some cases for decades with symptoms that don't have a clear diagnosis. Yeah, I think all of you all out there are seeing these people, whether or not you admit it or not, um, to yourself. But these 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 people are all already in your clinic. You're already seeing them. The most important thing you can give them is the gift of time. If you're able to make recurrent appointments with them so that you can get to know them and, and help them to feel like they're being heard and seen. 
that's a big thing in any industry. You know, we have, it's not about necessarily the person getting exactly everything that they want and need. It's about just being nice and listening and validating somebody, right? Like the, the stewardess might not be able to get you on the flight you want or the ticket person in the seat that you want. But if they're kind and if they listen to you and they provide some compassion, that can go a really long way with someone, especially over time, especially if you say, come back in a month and we'll keep talking about this. You know, those things are so important to build that community for that person, to help be that first person that bridges them and connect them to other people. Learn about other things that might be helpful. Do you have a social worker you can refer them to? Do you have a therapist? Are there other people you can put them in contact with that might be able to help them on their journey and snowball them in the right direction? So I would just say, practitioners, I think you all are doing a great job. This system is very broken and I am very well aware of it. And just taking that time to listen I think is very important. You don't need to diagnose someone or give them a treatment in a medical visit for it to be a successful visit. And that's something that you need to remind yourself of and make follow-ups with people if you can. I I do want to finish up with a personal question. You yourself have found ways to survive and thrive despite having a long illness, which of the many tools that you and your co-author describe have been most useful to you? Yeah, I think that really finding a therapist that's not my friends, that's not another doctor um, or another healthcare practitioner, finding a therapist that I can talk to that knows about, my therapist is also a physician, that understands my condition can kind of help give me an outsider's perspective has been super helpful for me. And having that relationship to check in with me over time is wonderful. And for me, that, that person can be a lot of different people, like your primary care doctor. For me, that it's my therapist. And then I think exercise has been very important to me. And exercise, I think, is something that Um, can have some stigma attached to it. But even just when I'm sick, flexing and pointing my feet in the bed, making sure to do some stretches, make sure that my body keeps moving and getting those benefits of moving has been super helpful. And then really over time, and I've been dealing with this for 25 years. So looking at different natural products and supplements that at different times can be helpful for my symptoms and trying them out and seeing if they've been helpful for me. And um, there have been a couple that have been super helpful. And for me, you know, making sure my vitamin D levels are good and making sure that my magnesium is on board can, can really help me, you know, stay even. And there's other things I've tried that have been super helpful, but th- those are the biggest things for me. And I think also building my team, I've, I've sampled and tried lots of different things, things that I would have, you know, 20 years ago, I'd have been like, I'm never doing that. That's crazy. You know, I used to be a scientist first. And I thought that a lot of the things, if you would have told me I was going to be an integrative medicine doctor when I was getting my PhD in neuroscience, I would have laughed at you. But now I've seen, you know, first, now I know what the actual field is, but um, now I've seen a lot of these things and how they can help people. And then I can also talk to patients who are interested in them and who want to know how they work 
and if it could be beneficial to them and and have also experienced going through some of them. So I think that's very helpful um, for other people. But knowing that those things exist and how I felt during them so that if things come up in the future, I can say, oh, remember when I had this last time I went to the acupuncturist and I did this and it helped. Okay. And I actually have a toolkit. I have a kind of a, a list because my husband is not in medicine. And when I have something wrong, he can just go look and be like, oh, you know, last time you did this and it helped. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, cause when you're sick, you're the worst, you know, like you're the worst decision maker. You're in panic mode. You're just, you know, you're grabbing it's the box of cookies, hard. sitting down to the Netflix and <laughs> yeah. you're, you're not taking care of yourself. Right. <laughs> so, which also helps, I will recommend cu- cookies and Netflix to be on your, on your <laughs> contingency planning, but you got to put on your oxygen max mask first. And so that's why having other people who you can talk to and sort of know these contingency plans can be super helpful um, for you. Dr. Megan Jobson. Thank you ever so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. It's been lovely. You've been listening to Dr. Megan Jobson. She's an internist with specialized training in integrative and palliative medicine. She's also a neuroscientist and a practicing movement instructor. She is herself a person who lives and thrives with a long illness. In her clinical work, she combines her diverse training in exercise and movement, nutrition, conventional medicine, neuroscience, and integrative medicine. Dr. Jobson, with Dr. Juliet Morgan, is the author of Long Illness, a practical guide to surviving, healing, and thriving. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. And by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. May is National Physical Fitness and Sports Month. Can Cocovia be part of your nutrition and exercise routine? More information is available at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,341. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast has some additional advice on long COVID, views on prescription drugs as magic bullets, and Dr. Jobson's message to other doctors. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you will also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. 
but producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.